that means taking ownership for it. So, as we said earlier, the, the structure engineer specifies materials, you size beams, you're responsible for the amount of concrete, steel, whatever it happens to be that goes into the building. Nobody's really going to challenge you on the technical, we need this size beam, unless it's obviously oversized. So you need to take ownership, you need to calculate the carbon that's associated with that, tell people about the carbon that's associated with it, and try and then show how you produce the carbon. So it's really an ownership thing. What is up, everyone? And thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast, your go-to for all things construction and property technology. On today's podcast, we speak with John Orr, Professor of Structural Engineering at Cambridge University. In John's episode, we dive deep into interdisciplinary education as a means for innovation, changing mindsets around net zero construction, and the importance of adaptation to attract new talent. If you're enjoying our podcast, please check us out on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave us a review. This helps us get more amazing guests to give you guys the best and most informative content on technology in the built world. And shout out to our sponsor, Beta. If you want to connect with some of the biggest players in the construction tech world, including tier one building contractors, some of the biggest construction tech companies, investors and advisors, check them out by visiting www.the-beta.com. You are listening to Bricks and Bytes Podcast, where we take you on a journey in construction, technology, and business. All right, let's get this episode started. Hey, John. So tell us, how did you become a professor of structural engineering at University of Cambridge? And just give us a short story. And what is it exciting about structural engineering right now? I guess the short story is, as a younger person, I was the classic interested in Lego, Meccano, making stuff. I did a load of tours of universities, and Bath really stood out to me, primarily because it's one of the only joint departments of architecture and engineering. So you do have a sort of interdisciplinary process of education, which I think is really important, and it's sort of informed what I do after that. So I did my degree. My supervisor then, at the time, had a PhD going on flexible formwork which is about looking at how we can put the right amount of concrete in the right place in a building, which I thought was really cool. So I stayed on. I had never intended to do a PhD. And then after the PhD, there was a lectureship open and I never intended to be a lecturer. So I applied for that. (laughs) Um, And a few years later, I moved to Cambridge. So then just last year became professor of structural engineering. So it's kind of a bit random, bit chance, meeting the right people, that kind of thing. Hmm. Sounds like you uh, hit the like ceiling of your career because in my head, what normally happens is like people do like business for a while, get their expertise, and then they're like, "Oh, what do I do now? I go become a university lecturer." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things I've always done is worked in industry. So in my first degree, the first year I had the summer placement. I did summer placement every year, designing stuff in London with a very small consulting firm, four or five people. And then my PhD was sponsored by Atkins. So I worked one or two days a week in the Oxford office of Atkins, as it was then. And that really helped. And not on my PhD work, just on random stuff like design competitions or actually designing a building, which I found really helpful Mm. to keep my my mind grounded in what actually goes on. Because there can be a disconnect sometimes between academia and and, uh, industry. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's is it an ex- exciting time to do structural engineering nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. I think the key the key challenge, of course, is climate change, net zero, and there's a lot of sort of doom and gloom around that. And and I try instead to say 
how is this a positive message? And the positive message for construction is, if we're going to do something different, that means changing the way we design, changing the way we think about materials, use materials. And that's exciting as a designer. So we as structural engineers, we, we kind of specify how much material goes into a building. So we've got our hands on quite a lot of the carbon, particularly now that we have sort of lower operational carbon footprint. So it's a very exciting time to change how you design stuff. We know that business as usual isn't really compatible with you know, climate change. So we have to change. And working with teams collaboratively, architects, designers, engineers, contractors, that's really exciting. Okay, nice. And just back to like the University of Cambridge. So one of the things we talk about on our podcast a lot is um, attracting new talent into the construction industry. And obviously universities play a key role in that. And with with the University of Cambridge being ranked extremely high in, in world rankings, so I was doing some research yesterday and it's like top three for a number of different parameters and then top five or 10, but nothing was like less than seven, I don't think. So it just goes to show the prestige. The people that coming out of these universities like in my head i think that they're like want to go on and become like the typical textbook like doctor lawyer kind of thing do you find that's the case or are like structural engineers coming out of cambridge like different or are they more driven or can they bring something different yeah yeah for a couple of thoughts on that first of all i think it's definitely a good thing to have people who are trained as engineers going into other professions so I mean, maybe doctors, but lawyers, definitely construction law or even like an MP having an engineering background because all the skills you get doing engineering is about problem solving and dealing with uncertainty, all that kind of stuff. So I think it's good that people move. Anecdotally, I think I've heard similar things that people you know, study engineering and then go into consulting or management or essentially jobs which maybe pay a bit more. So that's a challenge for the construction sector, if you've got graduate jobs which don't pay as much as Google, Microsoft, Facebook, then mm. you're going to struggle to attract that talent. But I actually looked, I don't have the data specifically for the very recently, but the Cambridge Careers website says that of the people who've responded to their survey, 20% went into manufacturing. So for Cambridge, you have to remember it's a, it's a very broad engineering department. We have all disciplines of engineering. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of possible routes that people can go. And it seems that 20% go into manufacturing, which probably means sort of, I guess, making stuff, but in a more managerial sense. But yeah, I think the key thing for me is that training people to be engineers is good generally. We should do more of that. And if the construction sector isn't attracting those, then we should think about why is that the case? Is it just underpaid or not very interesting? That's a big challenge, definitely. Yeah, money's big thing. But A lot of stuff, when I talk with people about this subject, there's always comparing uh, engineering or construction to other industries like law, medicine, or finance. Construction is kind of not sexy at all. So have you got any thoughts how to make it more sexy and attractive to, to young, young people? Well, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. So I think that there's a lot of exciting stuff that can be done. I mean, if you think of you know, the, the Boring Company, one of Elon Musk's oh, yeah. companies, you know, they're trying to transform how we do tunneling. And actually, those kind of companies probably have thousands of applicants for their graduate engineering roles. So maybe it's there's a lot of opportunity around net zero and how we change the construction sector and do things with robots and automated and data and all that kind of stuff. And maybe it will be Microsoft or Meta or Tesla that are employing people from an engineering background to do construction projects. Because mm. if the current system is just kind of carry on business as usual, kind of boring people won't be attracted to that. And if there's somebody out there saying, we're going to do something completely different, you can use your skills as a coder, as a thinker, problem solver, come and join us. That will be more attractive. So 
again, it goes back to what's the pull, I suppose, into the construction sector. And if it's just because you like doing bending moment diagrams, that's fine. But I think there's much more to engineering than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a good point. And also, I would say that uh, engineering and construction doesn't feel like it's a progressive field. So it's been the output of the of engineering construction. It's a building usually or some infrastructure project. So it still it doesn't appeal to people because nowadays in the information age, people can't notice advancement within the construction, I feel like. And that's part of the reason they're not that attracted to it. Yeah, and I would just to add as well is structural engineering always seems to be a good or engineering in any capacity seems to be a good base for people like wanting to progress in a career. And I say that because a lot of like the founders and entrepreneurs that we speak to on this podcast actually started as structural engineers, more so than any other profession that I've noticed. Like we don't get like someone saying I was a project manager and now I became a uh now I started my own business. Mm-hmm. It's generally, I was a structural engineer and I noticed this and I started doing Start doing that. We're problem solvers. We are problem solvers. <laughs> I think it's a good thing that we have people who are training as engineers who then either dream up a company they want to set up or do something different, but they have that engineering brain. That's that's good, I think. I mean, mm. ideally, we train more engineers, I suppose, and then have more people going into the structural engineering profession. But we shouldn't view that badly that people want to do different things because that's good. It's maybe that the sector that we work in isn't doing enough to keep it interesting, relevant, and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me and Martin are trying our hardest. We <laughs> do, yeah. John, your thoughts on environment. So how structural engineering discipline can contribute to decreasing embodied carbon? So are we doing enough from an engineering standpoint to reduce carbon emissions in construction? The quick answer to that is no. I mean, if you look at some of the requirements for cutting emissions, they're fairly dramatic. So well, they're very dramatic, in fact. And I don't think globally we're doing enough. So the way that I think we can contribute to this is one simple phrase, which is make carbon as important as safety. So we worry quite rightly about safety, although we could also go into how many people actually understand what safety and reliability in the Eurocodes really means and what's the beta index and all that stuff. But we do worry about safety. And if we worried about carbon as much as that, then at least we have a chance. And that means taking ownership for it. So as we said earlier, the, the structure engineer specifies materials, use size beams. You're responsible for the amount of concrete, steel, whatever it happens to be that goes into the building. Nobody's really going to challenge you on the technical, we need this size beam, unless it's obviously oversized. So you need to take ownership. You need to calculate the carbon that's associated with that. Tell people about the carbon that's associated with it and try and then show how you produce the carbon. So it's really an ownership thing. And you can't wait for somebody else to tell you to do it. So one of the, the, the things we found in the MyQuan survey from 2017 is individually, everybody who responded absolutely wanted to do the right thing, reduce material intensity, etc. But when it came down to it, there are other pressures. You, know, you think the contractor might mess it up or you haven't got enough design time is a big one. So we all want to do the right thing and just take ownership for it. Don't expect anybody else to do it for you. How do you overcome this? Because I tend to see that it's difficult to improve this part of the industry if it's not required from the higher levels, from the government, for example, or through some very strict and rigid codes, which would require us engineers to to design things, including carbon footprint in every single project, every single beam. And this should be kind of structured in a way that, oh, you can't design beam with a huge spare capacity, 
but you have to yeah. stick to certain metrics to make sure that it's really the the least that you can put in this is this element yeah so yeah no i agree i think that it's a sort of carrot and stick isn't it you know we want to all try and do the right thing but sometimes you just need a stick to come along and tell you have to do it yeah so one of the exciting things at the moment is uh, building regs part z which is going through parliament at the moment so that's been pushed quite heavily by the ice rock team will arnold has been sort of leading on some of that but it's very much a cross-industry thing which is an amendment to the building regulations which you know requires carbon calculations and sets limits on carbon so once that's there I mean, you're hoping it gets enacted, then you absolutely have that mm. way to tell somebody we have to do this because it says it in the building regs. Yeah, and, and it's just their other pressures as well. And by the way, I really love the idea of taking ownership. Like, it's like, I guess that's a, just a generally a rule for life, right? But <laughs> generally speaking, people don't think like that. And it's like, well, you know, it's not down to me. It's down to someone else to make the rule. So I have to go and then do it. It should actually be, no, I want to make a difference. Like I will take ownership and do this yeah. off my own back. Are there issues with things like insurance? Because like have a little bit of a laugh on site and whatnot, but it's always a structural engineer's job to protect their insurance, right? So <laughs> any thoughts on that? Yeah, it does come up a lot. I mean, you're talking about the PI insurance or the insurance of the project? Yeah, PI insurance, yeah. Because, uh, you know, the beam's not strong enough and something tragic happens. And... Yeah, so I think there's layers to this. So one of the things we talk about as a sort of an easy win is, you know, London offices might be designed for three and a half plus one KPA floor loading. Now, do you really need that in an office? No, maybe you need two. And two is within the Euro codes. That's the lower bound of the two to three range. So uh, the first level is think about what's possible within the existing codes. And then you shouldn't have any issue with, what you just described there's a whole nother level of making very different design changes that could have that impact but you shouldn't really do that you should work within the code so you would hope that it wouldn't make any difference to pi insurance but i absolutely accept that when you're designing something if, if you're doing your calculations and you think which beam shall i choose which size shall i choose whatever going to the next one up is a sort of very human reaction yeah yeah and we call it the sleep at night factor so that sleep at night factor is yes you know it's a bit overstrength for that that's fine because it's overstrength. So nobody's going to complain about that. And one of the things we also know is if designers have built a building with too much material in it, they really don't want to know that. You don't want to go back and review that because then the client will ask, <laughs> why have you used too much material? So there's, there's a problem with learning from what we do because we don't want to get sued by a client, for example. Absolutely. Yeah, also like my, my thoughts are that Within the industry, it's always passing the responsibility further down the line onto someone. And it's very, we're kind of working in silos, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. As every professional, not kind of gathering the project like all together and trying to get it work much better. So, yeah. But, but this is like a cultural thing. But also, it's, uh, it's associated with this, with responsibilities and I think insurance as well, because everyone is protecting their own stick. Yeah. So yeah, why make it harder for yourself? Completely, and I think that kind of goes back to our education. So we we typically, I mean, I'm an exception. We go to architecture school, or we go to engineering school, or we go to construction management school, or whatever, and we are siloed from the beginning. So the engineers know their thing, and they view the architect as some slightly wacky person wearing <laughs> a black per turtleneck or whatever, <laughs> just a stereotype. <laughs> and actually, actually, that's really sort of detrimental to then the project being quite a linear process of 
you do this, you do this, and it goes along, and everybody does their bit, and then just gets rid of it, and never wants to see it again. Yeah. Whereas if you're, if you go to the sort of the model of people like Pierre Luigi Nervi or Ladio Dieste, where they were the designer, the architect, uh, the engineer, and the contractor, all in one, they took responsibility for the whole lot. Mm-hmm. As a result, had beautiful buildings. Mm-hmm. So that collaboration may be missing, but it doesn't help that our education system is so sort of separated into the discipline. That's super interesting because I come from Poland and in Poland there is a like there's a structural design office. There is an architect, QS, and there is a structural engineer in one as a one firm, one business. Obviously not as a one person, but there is a and they kind of get projects together and solve it together. When I moved to the UK, it's, it turned out to be like very specific and everyone is doing just their own thing. It's probably to make the business more efficient, which I agree, but it does not help uh, overall for the project. Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree completely. And a lot of those issues that we see in construction at the moment come from sort of people doing their job, for sure. I'm not criticizing what people are doing, but doing one chunk of work and then passing it along and somehow you need somebody controlling the whole thing and i don't think design really is a linear process it should be sort of looping looping and Mm. when you worked out your you know column grid spacing the first time you should have the opportunity to change it later on based on you know carbon calculations or something but it is i think typically not always i mean there are definitely some examples of collaborative work for sure but um Trying to change that is, is, again, a cultural thing. It's not a technical thing. It's about, I guess, money and uh, fees for people, that kind of thing. 100%. And even doubt, just pass it on to the builder and you know, they'll just deal with it. <laughs> no questions asked. <laughs> John, what's your uh, view on the future of the construction industry as a whole? Um, I know you're very focused on like net zero and carbon, but any other thoughts on technology? So for me, I think, yeah, the first thing is we can't accept business as usual. So I often put a graph up with the carbon emissions and the downslope is very, very steep. So it's about change. So I think it's actually an exciting time. The one thing that I am very aware of is when we talk about climate change and we talk about the UK, our context is very different to a lot of the world. So a lot of the world needs to develop, needs to build stuff. In fact, way, way, way more than the UK, hugely more. And so for me, I think the construction sector now needs to look at how the global south can build and develop in a way that's sort of compatible with net zero and just following our path of blast oxygen furnace steel and Portland cement is absolutely not going to work. And it's very difficult to, to say you can't use cement to somebody since we've used so much of cement. You know, it's, it's a very difficult position to be in. <laughs> yeah. But there have to be sort of again collaborative efforts to decide how can we do this better what's a better type of structure yeah that's a super interesting point because we already develop in the west but these guys are mm-hmm. uh, still developing so why cannot they use the materials and uh, cheap or fairly known uh, techniques that that we used to use yeah i mean one of the things which i quite like to repeat is to think about the vernacular architecture of a certain place so what we have now, it seems, is everybody's putting up concrete tower blocks. You know, they all look the same all the way around the world. But the vernacular architecture in each country is very different. It's based on the climate, uh, water, wind, etc. And sometimes learning from those past designs is really can be really useful. And viewing them as valuable, not as concrete and steel being better than these sort of natural materials, because they're, they're not in terms of climate and actually not in terms of human comfort as well. John, tell us about your role within ACORN? Sure. So ACORN, which stands for Automating Concrete Construction, was funded by uh, the UK government under something called Transforming Construction. 
and it was joint collaboration between a couple of universities and what we try to do is automate concrete construction hence the name um, and think about not just the sort of the fabrication side but how can we design concrete floors in a way that's informed by what's possible with our machinery our robotics so it was trying to avoid the heavy computer optimization that then you can't build or just playing around in the lab trying to link the whole thing together yeah so within this idea you trying to not to use to use non prismatic formwork right to to utilize the sections in the best way yeah yeah so acorn really came out of some of the earlier work so my flexible formwork stuff and a project we had around knitting carbon fiber to make reinforcement cages so we you know look at a building we talk about residential buildings offices most of the concrete's in the floor how do you design a more efficient floor well you ditch the flat slab because that doesn't really not efficient at all excuse me and make it a thin shell so once you have a thin shell then the question is how do you build it how do you design it how do you make that into a structure so what we ended up with is a mold for the shell components which was entirely made in our laboratory so a variable geometry mold so you can cast all different shapes on it over the top we spray essentially mortar type material with fibers in it make these thin panels which can then be assembled on site to create the shell so If you think of a typical grid of you know, eight meters by eight meters or something, you could make a shell that big in a factory, but then you're never going to move it anywhere. So we divided the shell up into segments and then thought about how you can interlock them in a way that can be demounted later on in the life of the building. And why is it not widely used yet? Well, <laughs> good question. There's a lot of inertia, I suppose. I mean, when we go and design a floor, you've got not much reason to just use a flat slab. You know, there's contractors who can do it. It's easy to design, and when you start talking about thin shells, suddenly people maybe don't know how to use that technology. So, but it's funny because they've been around for thousands of years. So it's not as if it's not as if we invented the concrete shell. But maybe it goes back to your risk insurance. Would you be willing to design a thin shell, forty millimeter thick thin shell, segmental concrete floor in an office building in London, or would you rather just stick in a flat slab mm. and leave it at that? Yeah, I think the issue is also people do what they used to do and what they know yeah. very well. And obviously, we as engineers selling risk, we want to sell minimum risk. Yeah, but there's there's no incentive to change either, really, right? It's like it's just yeah, yeah. It's, it's tough. No, exactly. So if there's no incentive to do something different, then taking the risk is silly from a sort of personal perspective. But if there was, you know, a requirement on maximum embodied carbon of a building, and you mm. realize that all the concrete in your floor is actually not really doing much, and adding massively to the carbon, then you might look at alternative ways. And again, there's levels to this. So, you know, the first step is take your flat slab, instead of making it 300 mil thick, make it 200 mil thick, make it work a bit harder, and then maybe coffer it. So put in the old sort of 1960s style coffering to reduce mm. weight again, reduce amount of material, and then you can go to a shell. So there's always layers of of Sort of optimization, I suppose, which mm. all reduce embodied carbon. You don't have to jump straight to a shell. You could do the one in between. Interesting. Yeah. There was a mention about robotics as well, Martin. You added that point in. So, and it is always a hot topic and an exciting topic at that. So, was there anything to do with Acorn and robotics, John? Yeah. So, the picture I always put up in presentations about Acorn is a photo of the Tesla plant somewhere in the world, mm -hmm. where you've got all the sort of classic stuff going around. And what we're not doing is trying to say construction should be like the automotive industry because i don't think that really works but th the issue is how can we learn from those sectors which use a lot of automation 
And by using automation, have improved their productivity massively compared to construction. And how can you use robotics in a sort of sensible way rather than just assuming we can mass produce bathroom pods or hotel rooms, which I'm not completely convinced by myself. So what's the best way to use manufacturing, robotics, et cetera? And we settled on making these panels for the, the acorn shell. But there is a lot that could be done. There's all sorts of work going on from the sort of precast stuff that we're talking about through to actually on site and how robotics and construction automation can work. So you know, putting in bricks with a machine rather than a person. There's always lot, there's loads going on in that space. And I think it is exciting if it shows that you can improve productivity, mm-hmm. as in you're getting more value for the hours worked. Uh, and not just overly overcomplicating the problem. Yeah, exactly. Not just using it because it's fun and uh, cool, mm. like robots are. <laughs> they are very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Sean, just wanted to pick your brain. So the podcast is Bricks and Bytes, and we we want to explore the technology in construction and the, trying to predict the future, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what is the next uh, significant advancement in structural engineering that will change things that are being done in a certain way now is there anything that you can think of is it going to be for example newly engineered material that is kind of super strong or is it kind of the way we design things or codes or carbon zero codes that we that you mentioned so i don't think there's going to be a magic material that comes along and saves us it's super strong and zero carbon but i do think the big change for structural engineering now is how to design from reused components so existing stuff Hmm. so changing the complete process so when you design you start with a blank sheet of paper draw out your building and somebody makes it for you turn that on its head and you start with a library of bits that have been deconstructed or yeah deconstructed from buildings how do you reassemble those materials which will be different ages different strengths different spans all that kind of stuff into something that satisfies the brief of a client that you have and that's not really taught at universities in any great way um, but it is, for me, the key challenge now, how, how we make reuse the starting point of new design and just go away from that or we'll just use more cement or more steel because that shouldn't be the case. And what's, John, what's your personal vision for the future of real estate and construction? For me, it's about achieving that net zero target through buildings which use as little material as possible. But crucially, we are learning from real performance. So I think we need to do more to understand how buildings really work, how much material is in them, in order to be able to improve the design process. So that that for me is maybe things like sensing in buildings, but it can be much more basic than that. But it has to be a, a circle of learning that we don't seem to have at the moment. Everything is sort of very individual. You don't learn very much from the project. And if we don't do that, then it's very hard to reduce the carbon. Mm. Yeah, I agree. It's very much like project by project, right? So do a project and then I guess the people that retain that knowledge are really the people that worked on it. But then you go to the next project, it's a completely different team anyway, so you're almost back to square one mm-hmm. every time you start. Yeah. I mean, the classic example is how many times has a 7.2-meter flat slab in concrete been designed? Surely it's been designed enough times now, but it will be designed again by some graduate engineer, I'm sure. And it's being designed now as well. Yeah. <laughs> why, why we speak? Yeah. Why we speak? <laughs> I was going to say, mine. how many have you done? <laughs> Okay, so in terms of academia in general and engineering, is there anything that you guys are focused on particularly? Across the whole of academia? Yeah, in engineering, in structural engineering. I mean, I'd love to say that we're all 100% focused on net zero and practical stuff, which can lead to that. 
and I think more people are now for sure. I'm kind of a bit negative, but uh, there's just such a huge range of, of things going on. Yeah. Almost anything you can imagine, somebody is doing it somewhere. Mm. It's hard, like, do focus on net zero artificial intelligence. <laughs> and you've got like some people that are like, oh, we could ex- expend our resource and really focus on net zero. And then you've got like things like ChatGPT, which blow up and everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh my God, this is way more exciting. Do we go and focus on that now? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of work around, so let's just call it data in engineering. And, and, and that's exciting. There's lots of things we can do with collecting data. But, you know, once you get more and more data, it's hard to know what to do with it. And are you actually getting to what we might call the insight of the data. So, you, you know, sticking strain gauges in all the beams in a building gives you a, a huge database of stuff, but what's the actual engineering insight? You know, it's difficult to collect all that information, but are you actually improving your knowledge? So it's, I think, very important that we don't just think AI data machine learning is going to solve everything. Not that I'm in that field at all, but where do you put it in the mo- most sort of sensible way because there are lots of things we can do right now which would cut carbon emissions. So if we if we make that our goal, what are the quick wins, the easy wins, and then what do we need to do at the slightly harder win level? And I'm not sure if, yeah, AI might be the answer, but I don't know. Yeah. If we train AI for long enough, maybe they'll have the answers. Well, we know what the answer is. You know, don't use cement, don't use blast oxygen, furnace steel, <laughs> yeah, yeah. reuse everything. That's the answer right there. <laughs> yeah. That's the answer, but it's not a, solu- it's not a feasible solution. Yeah implement so when this part z is coming out as and as it should be actioned so building regulations part z is going through parliament i forget the mp's name but it's certainly there's no date for it to be enacted um it will depend on whether it's accepted in its form it's a very very simple amendment to the building regulations you can find it at part-z.uk and yeah as i say i hope it gets through because it it will change the way we think about carbon in the context of building regulations and that's the sort of the stick that people need would that mean that as a designer of a let's say new build detached home i would be required to include part z calculations within every project or within certain types of projects what would be the tangible effect if you are aware of this yeah so it essentially follows the rics guide on how to calculate carbon which we followed in the istruct t so you have to do a carbon assessment and then there'll be a table with limits to what the carbon can be. So it's very simple, uh, obviously, for like certain size of projects. And that's it. So it starts quite simple. It's only a few paragraphs. Uh, but you have to do a carbon assessment. You have to have a limit on how much carbon you use. And if you use more, then you have to offset it somehow, or pay something? or what's the... I don't think you can use more. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't encourage people to offset anyway. That's not the answer to it. <laughs> this challenge doing so again business as usual plus offsetting (laughs) (laughs) mind's way out (laughs) mind's thinking damn i'm gonna have to go back to university and learn oh maybe he can go and join the cambridge team cambridge class (laughs) (laughs) okay martin any more like structural engineering questions that you have i think we covered quite a lot in a very holistic way so anything john that you would like to put it out there in terms of engineering or anything no, I think we've covered the main things, which is carbon is important as safety and reusing everything. The message I try and make to everyone is it's, this is an exciting, fun, positive news story, because I think we're all fed up of being told the world's going to end and climate change is a massive disaster. We need to spin it around, reframe it as what's the opportunity to do something that's good for the environment and also exciting for you, rewarding for you as a designer, not just constantly being told it's wrong. I don't think that helps at all. So 
that I think mm. we're trying to push much more is the sort of positive impact we can have on the world, not just telling everyone they did it wrong because that doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just reducing the time on the doomsday clock. <laughs> mm. Yeah, because that's been going for 30 years and nobody's really, yeah, I don't think it works culturally. I think we need to encourage good practice, better behavior and positive improvements. Yeah. Yeah. But I also unfortunately think that it's it's only feasible through regulation because being in the industry my whole adult life, it's kind of, it's business as usual, unfortunately. And unless something is regulated and there is a you must do that. You must do that. You can't do that. Then mm-hmm. it's it, people don't do it. The, an example is you mentioned health and safety. So once the health and safety regulations were more like on board and required to be applied on site, etc., then there was no health and safety. Mm-hmm. Another example is Part B and uh, Grenfell Tower and all the regulation in terms of combustible materials of for buildings over eighty meters. Once something bad happens, then is that there is a reaction to it and then people kind of start thinking about it a little bit more. So I think, unfortunately, the regulation is is the key to change things. I agree. I agree. There are also, you know, there's people who've signed up to the structure engineers declare or construction declares, architect declares, and what they could do, and there is one company I know of that has done something similar to this, is say, we're not going to take any projects which aren't compatible with our ambitions to be lower carbon. So you know, if the client says we definitely want this pre-stressed concrete frame or whatever it happens to be, they just won't take the job. Now, that's a very difficult decision to make because you taking a job is your literally your income. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then it's about finding the clients who will want the stuff which is lower carbon or more sustainable. And I think that there is a market for that because there is, yeah. you know, well, pretty much every big firm has a corporate social responsibility statement that they put out on their website which says how great they're going to be for the, the environment. Uh, that one. <laughs> uh, you've got to translate that through to actual implementation of when you ask a design team to build you in your office, then it should be compatible with your statement. So I think there is a big market, but yeah, I totally take your point. It's a combination of individual action and regulation. Okay, excellent. Shall we go on to some off-topic questions? <laughs> well, it's, it's actually, the, the one I have is really more still on-topic. And... John, like, honestly, I feel real privileged to have to talk to someone um, like yourself who's, who's a, a university lecturer at Cambridge. So how does someone become a lecturer at Cambridge? Yeah, good question. Um, you need to do a degree, obviously, a master's degree, and then a PhD. Pretty much everybody does a PhD. And then I guess what Cambridge and, and all universities are looking for are people who can do fundamental science research that will improve the sector they're working in which normally means having ideas that will win funding. So, you know, winning jobs is what we do, similar to, to industry, and do all the other things like publications and teaching and so on. So it's it's very hard to say exactly what you can do to become a Cambridge professor other than be really good at something and then see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And obviously, sounds quite busy. Sounds like there's a lot of uh, like moving parts to it. Yeah, so I guess my my job is divided up between research, teaching, I mean admin a little bit, and consultancy. So I try as much as possible to carry on doing the consultancy work that is interesting to me because of what we discussed before about yeah. not being divorced from what's going on in the real world. So actually, one of the people I used to work with in my PhD is set up his own company, and I do occasionally bits and pieces for them, which is interesting for me to see where sort of construction is getting to. Mm. 
we're obviously most focused on research. Cambridge is quite good in the fact that most of my time is spent on research, which is nice. And that's about winning grants and, and paying for that time, of course. But then the teaching, it means that we can immediately put stuff from research into our teaching. And the students have sort of the latest thing about construction on their desks when we're doing it. So yeah, nice. It is a, there's a lot going on, but it's sort of quite interesting, I suppose. And it's not only sitting in, on the, in the university and teaching, but uh, you mentioned earlier before we started recording that just came back from South Africa and soon going to Australia and it's also work-related trips. So yeah, it's one big jolly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I mean, I feel slightly hypocritical going on lots of flights when I'm talking <laughs> about net zero. So I do, I do appreciate the sort of conundrum there but one of the things i'm doing this year is, is sort of a world tour taking but you're not you're not going by a private jet no yeah just don't let the daily mail find out you'll be fine unfortunately not no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean yeah we're going so i'm taking some of the micron findings around the world so one of the interesting things for me is about the culture of construction in different countries and i think it is important to go and meet people so that's kind of my excuse i suppose and again, going to those those quick wins, my favorite quick win is if I could convince China to reduce cement production by 7%, which is not that much, you could do that easily, it'd be the same as shutting down every cement plant in the whole of Europe wow. in mm. terms of carbon impact, approximately. So there's 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 a reason to go around the world. We have to think global. Yeah. Well, what happens then with the price of cement? I think it goes 300% higher as it is now if mm-hmm. this happens, yeah? Yeah. And for me, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definitely a good thing. So uh, one of the things we talk about a lot with cement is you know, people putting carbon capture and storage on a cement plant, but that's really expensive and that doesn't really work. But it's very expensive, first of all. So by definition, then the cement has to be more expensive to pay for the process. And if cement is expensive, then you won't be designing your beam to be 50% over strength because cement is expensive. Your client will know that they need to use less cement. Mm-hmm. So I think there's actually... A, a positive there about making it more expensive the problem with cement is it's abundant and basically cheap so we use loads of it you know it's a simple relationship all right john uh, apart from work and family where do you spend your time on where do i spend my time well mostly on airplanes at the moment traveling around mm-hmm. i play the french horn so i'm a bit of a musician like going nice. to orchestra i used to be a cyclist but my bike is broken at the moment but uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Do you play in orchestras? Yeah, 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 here in London. So I'm based in London. Oh, wow, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Nice. Was uh, Have you played at like uh, Royal Albert Hall or anywhere like that? Sorry, that's just like the first thing that comes to my head. No, no, no. I had to, funnily enough, I have played at Royal Albert Hall. Wow. Where, so my school had its, I think it was 400th anniversary, yeah, it must have been, in 2013. And they hired the Royal Albert Hall for that. And I went back as a ex-pupil. Uh, but that was the only time, I think. It's not, no, I'm not a famous musician. You know, I don't get to go and play in those fun places. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Cool. All right, let's, so I think we can wrap up. So John, um, where can people find out more about you and your, uh, let's say your research and studies and, and teachings? Uh, yes. Yeah, so I'm, if you type in John or Cambridge into Google, you'll find me very quickly or my website is jjo33, yeah, uh, sorry, jjo33.com. Perfect. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks, lot. So nice getting to know you. Pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Bricks and Bytes podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you in the next episode.